Good day to you and welcome to another episode of An Irishman Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan. Oh, I know you're going to enjoy this classic episode. This extract from my conversation with Marion Keyes is a lot of fun and is a lot more to it. There is, in fact, nearly a full extra hour to this interview. Maybe you'd like to hear that. Maybe you'd like to hear other such conversations with hundreds of the greatest Irish people ever to have left our shore or ever been connected to the country. Well, there's only one way to get them. There's only one place to hear them. That's patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. It'll take you one minute to sign up tops. It's a fiver a month, a little under a fiver a month, and you'll get access to absolutely everything we've ever recorded, including our other series, Irishman in America with Marion McKeown, and lots, lots more. You'll also be able to walk around with a spring in your step of knowing that you helped this series survive and grow through these difficult times. Our chosen charity partner, as always, is Jigsaw.ie. In case you don't know, Jigsaw are a youth mental health charity that works to provide young people back home in Ireland with the mental health skills they will need to survive this life. I can imagine how difficult you found it during this pandemic. I know I found it hard. Well, if you're a young person who doesn't have the you know, the armour needed to get through it, you'll need someone like Jigsaw. Jigsaw has seen a 400% jump in demand for their services as a result of the pandemic. So they need your help too. With their phone line, webinar and website they are making a massive difference to young people back home across all communities well why not take two minutes to go over there and have a look see what they've got what they do and how they might be able to help someone in your life or maybe through a small donation you can help them that's jigsaw.ie the chosen charity partner of an irishman abroad that's the small talk now let's get down to business now your program what's the big idea well, they're going to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Marion Keyes, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to have you on the Irishman Abroad podcast at last. Tony, Thank you. <laughs> Tony, your husband and I uh, have been back and forth, I'd say, for a couple of years now in trying to find the right place so and time sorry. for it. You don't need to apologise. I just thought it was it was not a bad place to start the discussion because Tony is obviously such a big part of your life and such a fundamental part of the team that is uh, Marion Keys and everything you do. And with your current book being about just that, the relationship and yes. the, the modern kind of incarnation of the relationship. Could you tell me a little bit about how the two of you came across each other? Yeah, I was living in London and my flatmate, Suzanne, who was still a really good friend, worked with them. And um, they had a really sort of rowdy workplace where like with every birthday, you know, they'd all go out or, you know, leaving dues or. And actually, the first time I met Tony was at his 30th birthday party. 
um, Suzanne had been invited. So she arrived along with 27 of her closest friends and one can of warm Heineken. <laughs> um, we were like lots of Irish people living in London. And uh, and so that was the first time I met him. But um, then he had another lady in his life. And I was, I suppose, just beginning the final tailspin of my descent into alcoholism. And it was only after I got sober and came back to London after being in the Rutland that we became friends. So we saw each other in a, how would you call it, in a platonic way mm. for a while. And I would never have considered him boyfriend material because he was way too nice to me. Like um, he would ring when he'd say he'd ring and he was... <laughs> you know, respectful and turned up on time and looked after me. And and I'd always been drawn to kind of drama. I thought like it wasn't a real relationship if you didn't have massive, you know, door slamming, shouty rows. And <laughs> it took me a while to understand that actually this was what a healthy relationship looked like. And I always sort of touch wood when I talk about our relationship because I feel we are very lucky and maybe it's the fact that, you know, like we're very close and maybe it's the fact that we don't have children that has made this possible, you know, and we would have liked them. But very quickly, you know, when it became clear that, you know, I had a, a publishing career that was possibly viable, like he was OK about giving up his job and taken over the admin side of stuff and I'm not sure that every man would be comfortable doing it and I, I'm not having a go with men here I'm saying that like the roles that they are wrestled into by I suppose institutionalized sexism makes it very frightening for a man to kind of be the so-called second in command but for Tony and I it's it has just worked and like i you know i'd be lost without him like i really would it really sounds like a truly special relationship and when you say that thing about the lack of drama and realizing yes. that this is actually yeah. what we've been chasing all along it seems like that is a recurring theme in in your work that it dawns time and time again on characters that the thing that we regard as other that happens yeah. somewhere else is actually happening to me. Now, were there yeah. points in your life? I'm sure there's significant ones where you had to demystify the idea of things that we as Irish people as women and as people in the first world, I guess, regard yeah. as happening somewhere else. What was the most significant one of those? Well, I think probably the most pivotal thing that has ever happened to me is my alcoholism and getting sober from it. Because it really was something that I thought happened to other people and happened to people who lived on the margins of society. And that like, because I was middle class and had a degree and had a job and you know, had all the trappings of a kind of a respectable life. Mm. And also, I knew about alcoholism because it was in my extended family. 
And I remember thinking, just, I better make sure that that never happens to me. And I thought because I'd made that decision, mm-hmm. that, that, that that was enough to ward it off. And so by the time it all caught up with me, which is the year I turned 30, you know, I could not believe, as you say, that it was happening to me. You know, it was honestly the worst thing that I could ever have thought of, because if I was an alcoholic, it meant that I had to stop drinking. And I thought I might as well be dead. And I thought it was so unfair that it had happened to me, somebody who needed Mm. alcohol so much in order to function and in order to get through life. You know, why couldn't it have happened to a person who was already finding life that bit easier? Sure. Um, And it, it, it is, you know, whenever anything like that happens to a person, whether it's a death or whether it's a, a diagnosis of a sick child or something like that, you know, we go into disbelief or denial because it is so frightening. And like, it took me ages. Like I did, I went through all the phases of grief before I came to terms with it, you know, including incredible anger. Really? That, yeah, because I thought I'm only 30. Mm, this is life's like, not fair. Yeah, like how am I going to survive all those years ahead of me without being able to drink? I mean, and as it turned out, like it hasn't been anything like I expected, like it has been so easy to not drink and it has been so easy to function in the world. But back then, it was like grieving. Yeah, I mean, I've often said it was the love of my life. Mm. And it was like grieving the end of a really dysfunctional but passionate relationship. Uh, You said that the relationship began when you were 14 years old. And Mm. like a lot of people, when I when I hear you describe the constant state of anxiety that we were kind of taught to live in as youngsters in Ireland, the, the, the fear and the shame and the idea that if you don't do this, well, then you will be other. You'll be one of those people. Did it feel like drinking alcohol at 14 that suddenly that was the release valve? Completely. It suddenly made me feel this is how normal people feel. Because I didn't realize that other people were afraid. But I think now looking back, you know, the age I was and the times we were brought up in, that it was very hard to escape the shame that was put on us and, you know, our fear of our sexuality and our fear of not going to mass, you know, all those things that we had to do in order to be considered acceptable and not deviant. But I think just some people are more sensitive than others. There were, you know, other people who got the same kind of indoctrination that I did. And it just didn't, they didn't internalize it to the same depth, I think. Or I don't know, they were just able to kind of, they were more resilient, it could bounce off them. But for people like me, I was so afraid of the whole thing of going to hell, of getting into trouble, of not being a success in that, like, you know, I was told that, like, I had to get some sort of respectable job and I had to, you know, get married and have children and be... Make your parents proud. 
Yeah, make them proud, exactly. And I didn't feel I could do any of those things. But when I drank, those fears receded. Mm. And from the word go, I was enthralled to alcohol because it was like I had found the missing part of me. And I thought this will enable me to navigate life. It was a really powerful and instant bonding. Similar to you, um, I went and did a university course, which in hindsight, I kind of look at and go, that was definitely an effort to to do what the the, yeah. the marks I was getting. <laughs> it was to yes. it it was a jigsaw piece that that naturally exactly. went there. But you're an extremely bright kid and find yourself in in law, studying law, and I'd imagine doing quite well at it. At what point are you? At what point does it become abundantly clear to you that this was? a decision taken to please your parents, but not yourself? Probably not until I actually had the degree and then realized that I had no idea what to do with it. I mean, absolutely. Like I got the points to study law, so I did it. I had zero interest in it, (laughs) but like I could see how like out of their minds with pride my (laughs) poor parents were, you know, They hadn't had the opportunity. And then it was only really when I left UCD that the fact that I was completely unequipped to deal with real life kind of caught up with me. It's very hard to describe, but like at school, I was like so many of us taught a certain type of education in that like I was told I had to remember a lot of facts and know a lot of stuff. But I was never taught how to think for myself. Mm. And actually, I've heard that said by foreign employers that like Irish people, not so much now, but like of my generation, that we were diligent, but we had no ability to um, to be proactive Mm. or to think for ourselves. We, We were paralyzed by fear whenever that occurred because we were terrified of making the wrong decision. So it was a very bizarre sort of education that was provided in Ireland back then. You know, they wanted us to know stuff, but the last thing they wanted was us kind of breaking free and thinking for ourselves. I mean, that was that was very much my experience. So I and also I had such low self-esteem that like I went for a couple of interviews in order to to try and get apprenticed. And I just I was not convincing in them. And also this was 1984 and, I mean, Ireland was going through one of its, you know, countless recessions at the time. And about 18 months later, I left Ireland and the year I left, 50,000 young people left. So it was very obvious that I was never, that the law was just not going to be. And I would have been a terrible lawyer because... I could remember stuff, but I had no, I had no ability to kind of make leaps or take risks with work. I was very immature intellectually and emotionally. I mean, I found certainly when I arrived in London that the sensation of liberation was, you nearly touch it. (laughs) Oh, it was joyous, utterly. I mean, 
the fact that I was completely anonymous there and that I was answerable to nobody, that sense of that you could be anybody, you could even be yourself. Like I worked in a restaurant and the fun I had, like the difference between Dublin, which like, you know, even now when I think of Dublin back then, I think of it in black and white, whereas London was technicolor. And like Ireland was run by the priests and London, it was anarchy, you know, <laughs> like it was it was complete unfettered freedom. Yeah. Oh, I loved it. I'll I mean, never forget it. Yeah. I mean, if it felt like that for me in 2013, I can't imagine what it felt like back then. In 1986. Yeah. It is hard to actually put across in words what a difference there was in, in both countries at the time. I mean, the troubles were still happening and, yeah. you know, a, it was a lot of things three were... Years, yeah. It was only three years after the Eighth Amendment had been voted through by an overwhelming majority. Do you know... It's like, extraordinary. It was, that, that was, it was when it came in. It was a country that was run by priests. Can I ask, though, because you say that this obviously precipitates in this turning point and this realization of the addiction and how even when you went in to uh, be treated that you hadn't actually accepted that you had an addiction at that point even that yeah. you, you were you were still saying uh, well I'm different and I'm special like so many people do I'm yes. troubled and once I have some time to think about my situation I should Sorrows. be I should yes. be fine you've said though that it was in those meetings where you started to tell the stories of the situations that you were finding yourself in that you discovered your ability to be funny. Can you tell us a yes. little bit about that? Yeah, because like I had no opportunities to speak in public. It never I didn't even know that I could be entertaining. However, I had always lived with Irish people. And I think that was unconsciously because I find them so much funnier <laughs> than other nationalities. It's true. And like my flatmate, Suzanne, who was the one who introduced me to Tony, like every disaster, especially with men, like we'd end up kind of crying with laughter. <laughs> Any bad thing could be reconfigured and recalibrated into an entertaining story. The thing about, you know, the 12 step meetings that I went to and still go to is that, you know, you speak your truth. You just speak about what's going on for you. And I would just be telling how I felt on a particular day. And, you know, I strove for, I suppose, to be articulate and to be honest. But there was something about my delivery that had people laughing. And I was like, what? What's going on? And. That was interesting, that it was a part of me that I hadn't known really existed. And I have to say, like, they weren't laughing in a mocking way, mm. but simply... In empathy and along with you. Yeah, but something, there is something about the way Irish people construct sentences, that they can be little works of art. Mm -hmm. I'm not just talking about myself, I'm just talking about in general. Sure. We take pride in it. We're good at it. And we do it almost subconsciously or unconsciously. I find it's often just holding the punchline back, 
holding back yes. <laughs> that we have a tendency yeah. in conversation to know that I'll deliver that bit at the end <laughs> because exactly. that's yes. when people will will really yeah. get it and yeah. that'll be a reveal that we can all enjoy and it's funny like you say it's I, I, a sense of timing yeah yeah and I grew up around a dinner table where if you could hold them for mm. the duration of your story then you were a king of the table for totally. for that time I know that there's a distance though between being in the meetings and you know, in the same way as a stand-up comic myself, there's a distance between entertaining the lads and actually putting pen to paper and committing to, well, I'm going to attempt to write something that I believe to be funny. And some of the some people don't get there. Some people just don't have the courage or simply lack that final little shunt of belief that it takes to go, well, I'm going to try and create something rather than simply being a raconteur down the pub. Uh, yeah. For you, it was reading a short story, I believe. Yeah, uh, it Do was. you remember what the short story was about and what was the thought process that led you to go, I could do that? I can't really remember the details. It was about a woman who went to a festival and met a pig farmer from Minnesota. <laughs> um, like it was, it was quirky, definitely quirky, but it was funny and it was irreverent. And it was, I hadn't really read anything similar to it. And I suppose it must have been written in some sort of colloquial style because that was what attracted me to it. Because you're younger than me and a lot of people listening are younger than me. But like when I was growing up, like in the 60s and 70s in Ireland, everything Irish was so crap. Like our telly was wogeous and, you know, our pop bands were like embarrassing versions of English ones like everything we did was just ersatz oh it was mortifying and so it never occurred to me that like anybody would be interested in reading books written by an Irish woman in an Irish accent but yeah I read the short story I liked it something inside of me said you could do something like that and there and then I wrote a short story, but I wrote it as if I was dictating it. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't, I didn't strive to be, to have a style different to my actual speaking voice. And that's, that sort of honesty or integrity worked. It's not perhaps what would be recommended maybe by creative writing teachers, but you know, I was chatty in person and I'm chatty in writing. Sure. And something about it just, I don't know, made people comfortable. Yeah, it it is. Again, you mentioned something there about kind of Ireland wasn't cool at the time. I mean, it's it's kind of something we take for granted now that, Mm. you know, when you have the Chris O'Dowds in Bridesmaids and it's kind of, you're exotic and a little bit like there's a baggage of entertainment and fun and crack that comes with being Irish it is hard to believe that there was a time when not, that, yeah. wasn't, that wasn't a cool thing to be yeah. uh, uh, like uh, it absolutely wasn't I mean especially like living in London in the 80s when you know the IRA were carrying out their bombing campaign like it was very much to be Irish was not a good thing but then around the mid 90s everything changed 
What do you uh, attribute that to? And do you remember feeling that change? I do, but it's mortifying. What I remember as the turning point, and I can't even believe I'm saying this, <laughs> but it was feckin' river dance being on the Eurovision. That was 1994, wasn't it? Yes. I don't know. I do think suddenly people were like, what? But that's good, you know. And I think suddenly the economy had started to turn around and that made us more confident. Yeah. And I think a generation of people had come of age and like and I was one of that generation that kind of straddled the old Ireland but had managed to shake off a lot of the awful stuff we'd be filled with. Sure, the, the, re- the restriction. Yeah. Yeah, I think and maybe the fact that a lot of us had had to emigrate it made us more confident. And suddenly, we were different. We were definitely different. We, you know, the money gave us confidence. And I know people complain about the boom and say, we lost the run of ourselves and all. And, you know, maybe we did. But for a country that had been so poor for so long, I don't see how anybody could be blamed. And I do think it changed us as a nation. It grew us up. It gave us more confidence. So I started writing and then shortly after that, like other Irish women started writing and they were received by the world in a very different way to previous Irish writers. Because we were writing about a modern Ireland where, you know, where people had sex. And I mean, I know that doesn't sound terribly exciting, but it was actually kind of groundbreaking at the time. Like my mother went bananas with me when I wrote my first book where a woman had sex with a woman she wasn't married to. Like, she was really upset. Really? Like, like very angry and ashamed. What and was she saying to you? Like, what, what were well, her she words? she was afraid. I mean, she was afraid of what would happen to me. Wow. That people would shun me. Mm. You know, like, let's not forget, like, Edna O'Brien in the 60s had to leave Ireland her books were um, censored and her parents were ostracized in their town in Clare. You know, that it's was only 30 years. Less only than 30, 30 years. Yeah, yeah, 30 years earlier. Yeah. So it was no wonder that she was afraid. But I do think that that cluster of Irish women did a lot to change the way Ireland is perceived in the, um, in the outside world. Like some, you know, suddenly people saw us as a modern com- country. Like I've met thousands of people who have come to Ireland because of um, those books. You know, they saw mm. that we were no longer a kind of a, a theocratic backwater, but that we were a modern, fun city or country, you know, with fun people who were wonderful with words and had music and, you know, conversation. We had fun to offer people. You know, part of the reception as well of that cluster of women, and I, you know, I was young at the time, but I, I do remember it happening. I remember what you're describing of the planets aligning with things like Father Ted, for example. I was uh, just going to say Father <laughs> Ted. Yes, yes. Game changing. Uh, you know, the, you could feel yes. the 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 cultural plates shifting underneath your feet. Utterly. Yes. Uh, um, 
one of the things and one of the aspects of the reception that I've heard you talk about before was the slight air of belittling, uh, maybe not even slight, I mean, pretty, pretty straightforward, referring to this cluster of women and what they were writing and what they were doing as being kind of a waste and a little bit silly and giving it its oh, own yeah. label. Can you remember first hearing of that and feeling yeah. the, the dismissal and how maybe it, it as well as I'm sure the obvious upset that that caused you must have also played into a certain amount of the imposter complex that we all walk around with as Irish people. Yeah, it was a funny one because I got much more love and respect outside of Ireland. I think there it is. That's just the beginning to hear almost 60 minutes more of this conversation and hundreds more full length Irish Man Abroad episodes and shows. Join us on patreon.com forward slash Irish Man Abroad. Help support the creation and continuation of this series for years to come. For less than a fiver a month, you'll gain access to all our episodes, shows, live events. And for a limited time only, everyone who signs up in the first two weeks of August will get my brand new stand-up comedy special, Notions 11, shot by my favourite director, Mike Donnelly, in Vicker Street in March 2020. That's hundreds of hours of entertainment, inspiration and laughter for less than the price of one of your fancy coffees over at patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. I want to say thanks to my ultrasound producer, as always, Brian Connolly, to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. And finally, to our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw. Jigsaw.ie are a youth mental health charity that is changing and saving lives across all communities back in Ireland. Now, more than ever, they could do with your support. Go to jigsaw.ie to see their great work, get some help with the young people in your life, or maybe through a donation, you can help them.